Luke chapter 7. Now, I'm really excited for how the Lord will use this summer steam camp that's going to be held August 19 to 23 to reach, our, to reach families in our community with the gospel. And this year's theme is Jesus, the light of the world, which I think is particularly appropriate given that we want to be a lighthouse for the lost. So I would encourage each of us to pray seriously about how we could participate meaningfully in this year's STEAM camp. So you can talk to Jen Grun of Moms Connect fame earlier and Joelle who was leading the singing today about getting involved. It's one of the best ways we've had so far to show the people around us a welcome for, from our Savior. And maybe this time the engineers will get better marks from the kids <laughs> than the art class, right? <laughs> Not that it's a competition. <laughs> now, we want to welcome the community into our building and into the family. Because for Luke... Jesus welcomes all people, especially those on the margins. And that resonates with me because I've been an outsider for most of my life. See, being a short, unathletic, eyeglass-wearing nerd really does not make for social success, especially in high school. <laughs> and, you know, having lived in Jamaica and now in Canada, in many ways, I'm still an outsider. But the one place I've always found unconditional acceptance is the church. Even if now I live in the South End, which I'm told is not Guelph. <laughs> That's the way it should be. See, Jesus' unconditional love trains us to love, accept, and honor one another. And in this section, Luke gives us a glimpse of Jesus' care for those on the margins. So let's read Luke chapter 7, verse 1 up to verse 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with him. When he was not far from the house... The centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. 
And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. And we see Jesus' compassion for outcasts as he goes to a Gentile centurion's home to heal a slave. See, really, the Jewish community leaders did not have to plead with Jesus, as verse 4 says. Neither did they have to recite the centurion's credentials in verse 5. And you see the contrast between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders were operating on the basis of reciprocity. He did good things for us, so he deserves that good things be done for him. Jesus addresses need according to his grace. And Jesus goes to this home because he cared for a lowly slave who was close to death. And the centurion might have been wealthy and powerful, but as far as the Jews were concerned, he was still an unclean Gentile. For all the good that this centurion had done and the Jews' appreciation for his generosity, he simply did not belong in Jewish society. In fact, the centurion himself did not believe that he was entitled to Jesus' help. That's why he didn't presume to come to Jesus. Instead, he had the Jewish leaders intercede for him. And we see that he was so conscious of Jesus' greatness and authority that in verse 6, Luke tells us that when Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word. And let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, true faith is humble because it recognizes on one hand Jesus' greatness, and on the other hand, our own unworthiness. And the centurion reasoned that if his authority as a centurion meant that his word made things happen. I say to this servant, go, he goes. This soldier, he, go, he goes. This servant, this uh, soldier, come, he comes. If his word makes things happen, then certainly Jesus must be able to heal his servant with a word. Because he recognizes that Jesus has much greater authority than a centurion like him. And Jesus is so amazed at this centurion's faith and confidence in Jesus that he tells the crowd following him in verse 9, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And as far as Lucan's concerned, healing the servant with the word could not even compare to the miracle of a Gentile's faith. And then from the heights of Gentile power and wealth, Luke now takes us to the depths of poverty and need from verse 11. We find Jesus and his disciples along with a great crowd approaching a town called Nain. And by the gate, they meet a funeral procession for the only son of a widow. Notice those words, the only son of a widow. And Luke tells us in verse 13, when, Jesus, when the Lord saw her, 
He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And you wonder, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, how do you tell a woman who's just lost her only son, do not weep? That seems rather insensitive. This widow is now all alone in the world, bereft of any support, and you tell her, do not weep? But then we realize as we read further that he could tell her to stop crying because in his compassion he was going to reverse her circumstances. We are told that he touches the bier, bearing the dead man, ignoring the ritual defilement, stops the procession, and he says to this dead man, Young man, I say to you, verse 14, arise. And that same authoritative speech that healed a dying slave from a distance gave life to this dead man. Verse 15, and the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. And so fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. See, the people realized that somehow God was present in the person of Jesus, showing them compassion and love. He had visited his people. Now, by this point in Luke's narrative, we know that Jesus isn't just a great prophet. He is God himself. And Luke wants to make sure that we understand who Jesus is. That's why he goes from the people's recognition that God has visited his people to John's question about who Jesus is. A question that he asked through his disciples. Are you, verse 19 and verse 20, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And you notice that Luke repeats the question because he doesn't want us to miss the question. See, John isn't having a crisis of faith, but he is rather puzzled because Jesus doesn't seem to be acting like the judgment-bringing Messiah that he was expecting. And so Jesus responds in verse 21 by referencing the things he had just done and then interpreting them in light of Isaiah's words in Isaiah 35, 4-6. He says to John's disciples, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In short, as far as Luke is concerned, Jesus' works demonstrate that he is indeed God's Messiah. But he is also a Messiah very different from what the Jews expected. As Thomas Schreiner would put it, the healings and works performed by Jesus indicate that the new age has come. And yet there has been no judgment, no destruction of the enemies. The new creation has arrived, and yet much that occurs is still typical of the old creation. Jesus is calling on John to see how the ancient prophecies are fulfilled in a surprising and astonishing way, that there is an already but not yet character to the fulfillment. 
But at the core, John was right. Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus actually affirms John's ministry. He says in verse 24-25, basically John was not a talk less, smile more kind of guy who pandered to the crowd. John was a faithful prophet who was, in fact, more than a prophet. He had prepared the way for the Messiah. And more than that, verse 27 implies, in light of Malachi 3, verse 1, that John had prepared the way for Yahweh himself. If you recall, verse 27 is a, is a quote from Malachi 3, verse 1. But it speaks of the coming of the Lord. And that's what made John the greatest human being. He had the unique privilege of pointing to Jesus, who is God the Son, incarnate. And that's wonderful. That's amazing. But here's something even more amazing. Look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 28. The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. And that's because John is the bridge between the two eras. But those who follow where the Baptist points comes into a closer, more intimate relationship to God that transcends even the best the old age offered. Do you realize that's you and me? We are members of the new covenant, and it is our privilege to point people to Jesus who forgives our sin, transforms our hearts, and sends us His Spirit to dwell in us. We are united to Christ so that we enjoy communion with Him by His Spirit. And at, G at Jesus' words, the tax collectors recognized God's justice because they had submitted to John's baptism of repentance. By contrast, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose because they refused to be baptized by John in verse 30. And so Jesus rebukes the attitude of the Pharisees and lawyers. And he tells the parable of the controlling brats. The ones who say, verse 32, they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. And the point that Jesus was making was that the Pharisees and lawyers wanted Jesus and John to dance to their tune. And when Jesus and John refused to dance the way they wanted them to dance, they were excluded. And, and see, that's the great thing about Jesus. He doesn't just care for the marginalized. He was also marginalized. He understands how it feels to not belong to the in crowd. But let's understand. We cannot... Make God conform to our wishes. The way of wisdom is to submit to God on His terms. And we see that wisdom playing out in Jesus' dinner with Simon the Pharisee. You see, the great thing about Jesus is He does not discriminate. He's willing to visit Gentiles, feast with tax collectors, and He will even dine with self-righteous Pharisees. After all, Jesus had come to call sinners to repentance. Now, during those days, 
guests at formal dinners did not sit at the table. They would recline at the table with their feet away from the table. Um, Yeah, right there. And while they were eating, something unthinkable happened. Verse 37, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, what wasn't unthinkable was the presence of this woman at the party. She wasn't crashing the party. You see, during those days, people would be allowed to observe the formal dinner. They were allowed to listen to the conversation, even if they were not invited to partake of the meal. But people were shocked because she was washing Jesus' feet with her tears, and then she let down her hair as if she was in mourning, only to use it as a towel for the feet of Jesus. That does not happen. And she goes even further. She kissed the feet of Jesus and anointed them with costly ointment. All of that to show that this woman was humbly devoted to Jesus. But here's the twist. Because this woman had an unsavory reputation, Simon took issue with Jesus. Look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. See, as far as Simon was concerned, Jesus shouldn't even have let the woman anywhere near him. This sinful woman would defile him with her very touch. And if he couldn't tell who's a sinner and who isn't, then he could not be a prophet. But he was sadly mistaken. See, the truth is, Jesus knew this woman better than Simon knew her. In fact, Jesus knew Simon better than Simon knew himself. And so, Jesus tells a story of two men. One man owned two months' pay. The other man almost two years' pay to the same moneylender. And neither man could pay their debts. Surprisingly, the moneylender canceled both debts. And so in verse 42, Jesus asked Simon, Now, Simon, which of them will love him more? And at this point, Simon smells a trap. I mean, Jesus had prefaced it by saying, Simon, I have something to say to you, which is pretty much the contempor- that day's equivalent to, uh, with all due respect, or I hope you don't mind my saying this, I'm about to say something that's 
that you will find disrespectful. And so Simon responds a bit noncommittally. Uh, the one, verse 43, I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And then Jesus says, you have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss, kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, mind you, Simon had not been rude. But certainly he had not honored Jesus. The woman whom Simon despised was actually a far better host than Simon. In fact, the way Jesus frames it, he's almost telling Simon, you know who the real host at this dinner is? This woman. Now, let's understand Jesus isn't complaining about the way Simon welcomed him or didn't welcome him. He is exposing Simon's faulty judgment. Simon labels this woman a sinner, but he does not realize that she is a forgiven sinner. And she didn't earn her forgiveness by her actions. The way Jesus frames it tells us that her actions demonstrate that she has been forgiven. They express gratitude at being forgiven. And that's why she was so passionately honoring Jesus. Because she was conscious of the fact that she had been forgiven and she was grateful. And by contrast, Simon's lukewarm welcome demonstrated that he was an unforgiven sinner. And his lack of love for Jesus showed that he had not experienced Jesus' forgiveness for all of his self-righteousness. He was still an unforgiven sinner. And of course, when Jesus tells the woman, your sins are forgiven, the other guests raised their eyebrows and asked, who is this guy? It's the same response that, was, that, that people had when Jesus forgave the paralyzed man. But we know, based on Luke chapter 5, in the miracle of the paralyzed man, that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. After all, he is God in the flesh visiting his people. And Luke ends the account with Jesus telling the woman, 
Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Because he wants to emphasize that the woman received forgiveness, not because of her actions, but through faith in Jesus. And Luke is challenging us to respond to Jesus the same way. In humble faith. Just like the Gentile centurion and this notorious woman. That's the only way to be reconciled to God and so enjoy God's peace. See, the Pharisees, for all their knowledge and commitment to purity, ended up rejecting God's grace and remained in their sin. And it's tragic, isn't it? Simon, for all his commitment to purity, for all his moral uprightness, was blind to the greatness of Jesus. But you know, as I condemn Simon for his misguided rejection of Jesus, I've come to realize I'm really a lot like Simon. I'm blind to my own sin. I'm blind to my own need of grace. I know I'm forgiven by grace through faith. I can preach it. I can defend it. But the question that arises as we reflect on this text is has that truth that we are forgiven by grace through faith humbled me? Has it made me so grateful to Jesus for His grace that I would give up everything so that I may honor Him? Unmindful of people's opinion and scorn. Has God's grace so gripped us that we would humble ourselves to look beyond an individual's quirks and shabby appearance and perhaps unsavory reputation to see the person made in the image of God? Has our experience of Jesus' love taught us to look at others the way he looks at us? Friends, we have been forgiven much. Therefore, we ought to love much. And that's why Luke closes this section in chapter 8, verse 1 to verse 3, by noting how some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities provided for Jesus and his disciples out of their means as they went around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. See, Jesus' ministry reached both the poor and the wealthy. Jesus had saved these rich women who, because they were women, were also on the margins of society. And he gave them the privilege of being a part of his ministry. And on their part, they exemplify true faith that gratefully responds to God's grace in sacrificial generosity and service. And what about us? Does the greatness of Jesus and the lavishness of his grace towards us so astound us that we serve him wholeheartedly? Tim Chester notes, Luke prefaces the story of the forgiven woman by telling us that Jesus' enemies accuse him of being a glutton and drunkard. It's an allusion to Deuteronomy 21-21, which describes how a rebellious drunken son is to be stoned. Jesus, 
his enemies are saying, is a rebellious son of Israel. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, we will see who proves to be the rebellious child. And it turns out not to be Jesus. Jesus will prove to be a faithful son. Indeed, the faithful son of Israel. Israel itself is a rebellious son of God. But here is the crazy irony. Jesus does die the death of a rebellious son, not stoned, but hung on the cross. Jesus is not the rebellious son. I am. You are. But Jesus dies the death of a rebellious son. He dies my death. He dies the death of rebellious sinners. In his love, he died in our place so that we would be forgiven our sins and reconciled to God. We're all outsiders because we're all alienated from God. But Jesus' love draws us and bids us welcome. And love so amazing, so divine, demands our souls, our lives, our all. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your infinite, unconditional, sovereign love that you set upon us before time began. Father, we confess we are sinners. And we confess that we don't even know the depths of our depravity. Forgive us for Though you have saved us by your grace, we are often so blind to our need of you. We are often so caught up with our notions of, good, of our goodness. Oh Lord, disabuse us of our self-righteousness. Expose our sin. Humble us before you so that we may know more fully the greatness of your love, the infinite riches of, your of Christ's sacrifice for us, so that we, your people, may truly be a people filled with gratitude, overflowing with delight in you, our good, gracious, loving Savior. Oh, Lord, may your spirit open our eyes to see the greatness of Christ and in light of his greatness, see our sinfulness so that we would be gripped by that love that saves us, that sacrificed for us so that we might be welcome in your sight. This we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.